0: I'm Dr. Brian Hu, a urologic oncologist and assistant professor in the Department of Urology at Loma Linda University. I'll be moderating the inaugural broadcast of the chemoablation and urothelial cancer podcast series. This series is sponsored by Urogen Pharma on behalf of the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society. Today, I'm very happy to say that we have two distinguished guests. Who will be discussing the real-world experiences in chemoablation in upper tract urethelial carcinoma and bladder cancer. So let me introduce Dr. Sandeep M. Prasad, who is the Vice Chair of Urology and Surgical Director of Genital Urinary Oncology, Morristown Medical Center. And we also have Dr. Christos Kamakliotis, who's an Assistant Professor in the Department of Urology at Indiana University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Prasad and Chema Kleiotis. Let's get started. You know, a quick introduction to chemoablation, which a lot of urologists are probably not familiar with, is that this is a new modality for treating tumors. We are used to resecting tumors or giving uh, intercavitary therapy. It's an adjunctive fashion. But chemoablation is a new modality where, where the chemical or, or chemotherapy agent actually is a primary treatment. So it actually acts on the tumor. And this is something that's very exciting uh, that hasn't been used much in urology. Um, so maybe I'll start with Dr. Kamakleotis. Like, what, why do we need chemoablation in treating upper tract urethelial carcinoma? Because a lot of people would say radical nephraeuterectomy is a perfect treatment. It has, well, maybe not perfect, but its cure rates are very good. Um, is there a role for another modality?
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Hugh, and a pleasure to be here with you today. So, um, upper tract urethelial carcinoma is a therapeutic challenge for our urologists, uh, mainly because of its rarity and also because there are two distinct diseases uh, within upper tract urethelial cancer. You have high-grade disease, and the standard of care for those patients is indeed a removal of the kidney unit and the ureteral drainage, all the way down to the bladder and its bladder cuff, you may argue that for low-grade upper tract disease, we don't necessarily need the same radical surgery for all patients. Uh, So there's a subset of patients that can benefit from a renal preservation uh, and can avoid major surgery. Major surgery comes with its typical uh, risks, including a 30 to 40 percent complication rate, uh, aliases, uh, hematologic problems, thrombosis, not to mention patients who may be frail, cannot tolerate anesthesia, uh, or patients who cannot suffer the loss of that renal unit. So a new modality that can offer a nephron-sparing approach is a big advantage for those patients.
0: Now, Dr. Brasad, you know, a, a different modality which does not have the same complication rate or, or loss of a renal unit Uh, It would be endoscopic or percutaneous treatments. These treatments have made enormous advances with scopes getting better, lasers getting better, um, and these are are arguably more more a part of the standard of care. Um, Where are we on on the endoscopic treatments, and are are there some disadvantages of of these?
2: Well, uh, Brian, thank you again for inviting me to join uh, this discussion today. I think it's an important and interesting one, uh, especially with new agents entering the space. I think endoscopy, um, in many ways, should be the standard of care, certainly for low-grade upper tract disease. Um, it's organ-preserving, um, and if, if done appropriately, I think it provides a durable benefit. The reality is that we, when we look at large meta-analyses of endoscopic management of upper tract disease, the reality is that in about two-thirds of patients, uh, there will be recurrence within the first year to two years. And so the reality is, while that is endoscopic management is a good approach for upper tract disease, it recurs quite a bit, and I think the truth of it is some of that is not just recurrence, but primary incomplete resection. And I can speak to my own experience of having tumors that are in the lower pole calyx. I can often get my flexible ureteroscope into that lower pole calyx, but then once I introduce a laser into the working channel, I can no longer flex into that uh, into that same space into that same space. I think all of us have had that experience, whether it's with tumors or with stones. In addition, once you start ablation. Uh, Many times visibility is impaired. Again, you have another instrument in the working channel. Ergonomics are difficult. Um, And many times I've found that I can work for so far and then I decide I'm gonna come back again in three months. Um, The the reality of endoscopic management is that really it's a particular tumor, probably one that's within the ureter or perhaps one that's in the renal pelvis that's really most amenable to this. But for those tumors that are in complex calyces or a tumor, for example, that is sort of a carpeting type tumor that's multifocal, A lot of times it's very difficult to get our our instrument and our laser uh, directly to the appropriate area. So again, there's a fairly high recurrence rate, about two thirds of patients. And then very interestingly, when you follow these patients long-term, about one third of patients that present with upper tract disease, uh, which is initially managed with endoscopy, uh, eventually get a definitive treatment, whether that's a ureerectomy or an upper ureerectomy. So again, it's a good option, but two thirds of the time it recurs uh, when we approach it endoscopically. And one third of the time, we again bring in that big hammer that we don't really want to bring in for this type of disease. Uh, and so I, I think in, in reality, we don't do as, as good a job as we hope to do uh, with endoscopic management.
0: Well, well, thanks. I think you both make good points about what's good about the treatments we currently have and, and what some of the negatives are. And so I think where we are in, in, in the treatment uh, uh, of upper tract urothelial cancer, it's actually really exciting because we... You know, I kind of make an analogous to when Shockwave came out or when the robot came out. This is a new technology that we're not really familiar with. Uh, So gel mito is a chemoablative technology. It's a drug, uh, and it's uh, used to uh, be placed up in the um, uh, upper tract, and it's six installations of a gel uh, with a mitomycin combined with what's called an RT gel. So it's a a reverse uh, thermal... Uh, drug where you put it in cold, and it's liquid, and then this drug will then warm as the body as the body warms it up, and then it will form a mold of the upper tract. Um, so, Dr. Kamakuliotis, can you tell us, you know, what does what the data show on gel mito and its efficacy?
1: So, a couple things about gel mito. Uh, first, we have to congratulate the urologist and yourself for being one of the investigators in that trial. Uh, a, a very unique trial in the sense that urologists came together to be able to perform an intervention type of trial, proving to the pharma industry that we can do these kind of trials and encourage more similar trials. Uh, it was a single arm phase three trial, as you mentioned, instilling or combining your reverse thermal gel with mitomycin, the chemoblade of Agent and approved as a device combining the two uh, and what the, what this did allowed the medication to be slowly dissolved once it solidified in the upper tract and slowly chemoblade tumors uh, and this was a positive trial it showed it enrolled seventy one patients who got treatment of which nearly sixty percent of patients had a complete response, meaning that patients were allowed to have a tumor measuring a marker lesion, measuring five millimeters or up to 15 millimeters. And after six treatments, the investigators came back and evaluated and 60% of patients had a complete response. This is impressive. Uh, As as Dr. Prasad mentioned earlier, the upper tract and pilococelial system is very difficult to be able to evaluate fully. You can get your small camera, into the nooks and crannies, but a lot of times you can't really see all the tumor. So being able to completely eradicate by chemoablation is a big success for this trial. In addition, 85% of patients had a sustained response at 12 months. You know, earlier Dr. Prasad mentioned that about 50% of patients will have a recurrence. So 85% of patients had a sustained response at 12 months. Uh, 11% of uh, the entire cohort had a partial response. And interestingly enough, another 8% of patients had eradication of their low-grade tumor and showed a small focal residual tumor of high-grade disease. So presumably those patients had focal disease that was not picked up on. So the chemoablative effect does truly work for the low-grade patient. So these are very encouraging uh, results from this trial.
0: Now, as I understand it, the, the, there's a subset of patients in this analysis uh, that the authors really looked at. Are, are you able to tell me a little bit more about that?
1: So these patients were deemed as unable to completely resect all the tumor at the time of endoscopic diagnosis and evaluation. Uh, half the patients had small enough lesions that one can assume that it can ablate with a laser or a cautery, but 50% of patients were unable to be completely eradicated. Um, so 60% of those patients had a complete response, which again goes back to the point that chemoablation with mitomycin does indeed work. Uh, so this is a new modality that we can offer to our patients to be able to fully eradicate disease in the difficult areas, uh, in the polycalousal system.
2: You know, I really, it's interesting. I think that that's really proof of principle of chemoablation, right? Those, that's what was half, essentially half the patients in the study had, tumors that were deemed unresectable, I think in all three of our hands, those patients would get a nephrouretectomy, right? And the majority of those patients, um, they had a complete response. And then for the vast majority of those patients, there was a durable complete response. Um, I think that's, that's kind of a home run, right? For the product where those patients would, would be evaluated endoscopically, be told, listen, you just can't get to it. You're gonna need this major operation. Um, I really look at that cohort as sort of a no brainer uh, to use the product first. You know, these patients are not gonna metastasize out three months, right? So even if you're in that minority of patients who are non-responders, you always have the opportunity three months later to give them another therapy option. Uh, so to me, this is kind of first line, uh, and certainly for me, paradigm shifting uh, in regards to how to manage these uh, uh, these particular lesions.
0: Yeah, I learned from that study that the intrarenal anatomy is not to be underestimated because those numbers on unresectability Uh, We're we're arguably in in a lot of tertiary care institutions with a lot of experts. So uh, having a drug uh, that that can cover the entire urethelium of the upper tract definitely from a a, a rational standpoint uh, makes a lot of sense. Now, Dr. Prasad, this this Olympus data that was published in Lancet was based on a clinical trial cohort. Now, is this medication available, and and what's your experience has been um, with the medication?
2: Yeah, so uh, the drug was approved last spring. I think it interestingly coincided with the start of COVID. So for many of us who haven't had the chance to attend meetings in person, uh, we may not have been able to sort of see and put our hands on the gel unless you've used it in a patient. Um, I was fortunate enough; I treated the first patient in the United States after uh, commercial approval. um, And I've treated patients both in ambulatory surgical settings um, as well as in a hospital outpatient department setting. So I've had the experience of using the product and training um, different staff members uh, in regards to using this. Um, logistically, You know the Urogen team does a very good job of sort of bringing uh, many hands on deck once you identify a patient. I can tell you in our practice uh, where we have centralized pathology review on a regular basis, uh, we're able to actually identify patients within the practice who already had existing low grade upper tract disease that have been being managed endoscopically uh, as probably both of you do. Some of our patients, we do a endoscopic ablation, bring them back again six months later or nine months later or perhaps when they're symptomatic, I think those patients are a really nice group to try to tackle with the medication. You don't need to wait for a newly diagnosed patient. Um, And what we found is that really in in almost any setting, uh, and our first patient was treated without even a a code available for the medication for billing, um, we were able to deliver uh, uh, the medication easily and effectively. As you described, Brian, in the clinical trial, um, it's the same uh, paradigm that we use uh, in the real world. So that's going to be a ureteroscopy with a biopsy to confirm low-grade disease. You need a cytology that excludes high-grade disease. And then again, like many um, urothelial cancer trials, you're going to model it after BCG. So it's six weekly installations. Uh, This can be done in the office under local. Um, It's really up to you. But on the clinical trial, the majority of patients have this actually done uh, with either sedation or with no um, just local anesthesia. So this is not a big undertaking for uh, anesthesiologist. It's about a five-minute procedure uh, to be able to do this. Um, and the Urgent team will be on hand to train your staff, make sure that all the protocols are in place in terms of chemotherapy uh, storage and utilization. It's sort of a, a simple process. The drug gets delivered directly um, uh, from a compounding pharmacy directly to the site. It's typically instilled via ureteral catheter, but you can use nephrostomy tubes and other approaches as well. Uh, I find it to be very straightforward to utilize in both settings. Uh, the Urogen team was on site for the first two installations at both sites, and then for the last four. Uh, In those two sites, uh, we didn't need anyone from the company to be there. It's really quite a quick learning curve. So the drug is available. What I would encourage uh, people who are interested in in using the product to do is simply to go online. Urogen has a very uh, simple enrollment form um, that your staff can complete online. It's a one-page form, identifying the patient, ensuring that you've kind of checked all the boxes in regards to biopsy, cytology, et cetera. And then really the team will turn around uh, within 24 hours from Urogen and begin the process of helping enroll that patient.
0: So Dr. Prasad, you you mentioned there's currently a a, a code
2: for for putting chemoablative agent uh, up? So there's a code for the medication. So there's now a J code for the medication, which means you can bill for it separately from the procedure, um, both in the ambulatory setting and the office-based setting in the the hospital. And so you're gonna be able to give this med in multiple different settings. I think the company is working towards actually creating a CPT code for installation of a a chemotherapeutic agent. but the, there's now a separate code for the medication to be unbundled uh, from the actual procedural code itself, which makes the reimbursement for the medication much more straightforward.
0: Well, that's great. Well, I do know that uh, having worked on the trial, that urologists are excited. We see a lot of patients. You get a lot of curbsides and say, hey, I got this guy with, with UTUC," And, and uh, they might not know the the trial, it, it, the ins and outs of the trial. So, Dr. Kamakliotos, what, what, what would you say for your partners is the takeaway uh, and when, and understanding gel mito and, and when it should be used and how it should be
1: used there has been a lot of excitement around the data from this trial so it is a new paradigm shift for our patients with low-grade upper tract disease the study was designed in, for treatment of patients in, above the pelvis in the pelvis so no ureteral disease um, the one takeaway to emphasize that it is a trial, it's a new medication, there are some side effects with this treatment. About 30% of patients did have some ureteral stenosis, some of which needed to be managed with a ureteral stent for a short period of time. From the trial itself, there were two patients out of the 71 that needed long-term stents, um, and the patients eventually elected to undergo a nephrauterectomy. Uh, and even those patients ended up having complete response in the final specimen, so it, it is a new way to treat these patients it's very easy to do, but we have to be sort of conscious that we can also have some risks of stenosis that may be transient um, Some of the ways that uh some of the ways that we've come about gone about treating patients uh outs, after the trial was completed was to use a stent after the installation. I think that's worked very well uh, for those of us who do it. Not everybody needs to have a stent. Uh, It makes it easier to pull out the stent in the office, uh, put a guide wire up, do the installation and replace that with uh, another stent for your next treatment. And that can be removed after the uh, sixth induction course. It is designed to have six treatments and then patients who do have a response can get a monthly maintenance dose. Uh, for 12 months as the, as the trial was designed.
0: Now, Dr. Prasad, how about when you talk with your patients about gel mito? What, what, what main points do you really want to get across to the patients?
2: Yeah, so I think patients are excited by the same things that we are uh, about the agent. Um, I emphasize that it's organ sparing, and I think for most patients, that's going to be a huge draw. Uh, as both of you know, many of these patients have uh, concomitant uh, CKD. I think a study from the Cleveland Clinic that looked at, you know, I think four to 500 patients uh, that they had that underwent nephrourytorectomy. The majority of those patients had stage three or above uh, kidney disease, even at the time prior to nephrourytorectomy, right? So these are patients already somewhat fragile uh, from the standpoint of renal function. Um, and so the idea that they can have a procedure that's potentially under local or conscious sedation um, rather than general anesthesia and that spares the kidney, I think you you have many patients at that uh, at that level already. Um I try to teach them a bit that this is chemoablation so the medication actually is eradicating the tumor itself uh, and i think again that's one of the very novel aspects of gel mito that i think is interesting to us but i i tell the patients this basically is something where topically it's going to melt away or eradicate the tumor Then when we talk about the complete response rate i tell patients that you know the majority of patients are going to respond but not all uh, but the truth is in low-grade bladder cancer it's very unlikely that in that three-month window patients will metastasize and so to have an option for organ sparing that gives you a uh, more likely than not chance to be a uh, complete responder. Um, I think that, that allays some of the concerns that patients may have about um, you know metastatic windows and uh, you know that that uh, le- that possible likelihood that they won't be cured by the procedure. It's interesting. I'm 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 not I don't st- have not stented the patients that I've treated. Um, uh, I think installation is sort of a is sort of an art that we're learning in practice. I think it was done uh, on the study in certain ways, and I think in the real world. Um, urologists have modified some of the things that were done on study. I know there are some um, some urologists that use uh, steroid dose packs um, uh, prior to, or immediately following a treatment to sort of limit some of the edema that's been seen. Uh, I've not had yet to place a stent in, in now at least 18 installations, almost 20 installations. Um, and what I do is I actually use fluoroscopy on every treatment. It's easy for me to do. I don't do this in my office. I do it in an ambulatory surgical center in a hospital outpatient department. Um, uh, ambulatory center. And so I always have C-ARM. And I, and I think that if you can position that ureteral catheter right at the UPJ each time, I basically leave the catheter in place for about two or three minutes while I'm cleaning up the back table after I've instilled the gel. That really allows enough time for the gel to solidify. And that catheter really is occlusive at the UPJ. It's a seven French catheter. And so I think some of the initial concerns that may have led to some of the ureteral issues uh, that were discussed earlier, maybe that some of the gel had migrated into the ureter before it solidified. I mean, no one will know that but I suspect that that may be the case. And I think all the tricks that have been discussed in in regards to trying to improve placement, whether it's stenting, so you minimize trauma as you pass each of the ureteral catheters, um, or just confirming that the ureteral catheter is really at the UPJ, not in the proximal ureter. um, I think those are the sorts of tricks that have been seen in clinical practice uh, that have really improved some of the, um, I think, the side effects. And I hope that uh, decreases the risk of uh, ureteral stenting, because that's Really, the last thing that I talk to patients about. I, I tell them that there is a possibility that you may need a stent, It may be transient. Rarely is it long term, um, and I think for most patients, they're willing to to take that low risk um, for the possibility of organ sparing and complete response.
1: I agree with Dr. Prasad. Um, the other point to make is that the thirty percent incident of uretostenosis in the trial. Was more likely an element of debulking the tumors. As part of the criteria in the trial, we had to make sure that tumors were between five millimeters and fifteen millimeters. So a lot of patients, including the two of, that I had enrolled, they had tumors greater than the fifteen millimeter uh, criteria. So we had to go up two or three times to downsize that tumor with laser ablation. So that that in itself, the multiple uteroscopies uh, are likely. as well and causing these uh, traumas to the ureter followed by mitomycin installation down the road whereas now what the urologist does is it goes up gets a biopsy if it's a if it's a good-sized tumor that they don't think they can ablate entirely if it's a small tumor and they can ablate it they may choose to do so but if they're leaning towards doing a chemoablation in the future a small biopsy and remove your instruments without a lot of trauma and then do your treatments down the road are not gonna to lead to the urethal stenosis that we saw in the trials. But I agree with your comments. Sorry,
2: I was gonna say some urologists think about the nephrostomy tubes.
1: Yes, yes. Um, I had treated, I have treated one patient with a nephrostomy tube and the salient point there is if the patient needs a nephrostomy tube, it's because they're not draining anti That needs to remain open afterwards to allow it to, to drain well. Um, the risk of any myelosuppression, I think is very minimal. Uh, and that was the concern of uh, using mitomycin in the upper tract. The risk of mouse impression is less than 1% from the trial data. At least.
0: Well, that's, that's a really good overview uh, of the data and the, the nuts and bolts. But to put it all together, Dr. Kamakliotis, say I have a patient, I biopsied them. They have low grade. It's above the UPJ. You know, how, how does the urologist decide what to do? So, should I ablate it, an uh, FU? Uh, how can the urologist decide what's the optimal treatment for that patient?
1: So I think if it's a small tumor, meaning that it's less than five millimeters within the pelvis, very easy to see. And if you think you can easily ablate it with a laser, I think that's a reasonable option. The recurrence rate is going to be high. I think if that patient comes back in the future has a recurrence, I would plan to explain to that patient the next time it happens, would ablate it, but also plan for an installation with mitogel Uh, and perhaps a maintenance dose to keep them disease-free for as long as possible. Uh, Urethral cancer is a chronic disease, especially low-grade disease. So these patients will undergo surveillance for for the rest of their lives um, or for a long period of time. If the tumor is, you know, the size that you really don't think you can ablate, I would encourage urologists to treat these patients with mitogel In an effort to eradicate the disease or have disease uh, prolonged disease-free survival.
0: Yeah, and I do know that the the NCCN did recently update their guidelines to, to to fit gel mito within there, and some people would say, oh, the the trial included tumors that were five millimeters or above. However, the NCCN did provide some guidance in saying that there should be. Uh, complete or, or near complete ablation uh, as an indication for gel mito. So there, there doesn't necessarily have to be, for the NCCN guidelines, a visible tumor uh, uh, to put the gel mito up.
1: I, I agree. If, uh, if you have a diagnosis uh, and even if you've cleared the disease, I think it's very reasonable to offer gel mito to our patients. Uh, the European Association of Urology has uh, guidelines prior to use of gel mito. Uh, encouraging uh, nephron-sparing approaches for low-grade tumors with no evidence of high-grade biopsy or cytology uh, under two centimeters. Uh, there are tumors that may harbor a small focus of high-grade disease, the larger the size of the tumor. Uh, so I think and also patients may have multifocal disease. Uh, so with mitomycin now being able to instill, I think that European guideline recommendation of two centimeters or less or multifocal disease uh, being exclusion criteria should be revisited. I think it's a reasonable option for low-grade disease of any size to offer that. I agree with Dr. Prasad saying that this patient will likely not metastasize in the next three months. So you have a chance uh, to salvage that patient if things are not moving in the right direction.
0: Well, that's great. That was a really good overview of uh, upper trachea urothelial carcinoma in the real world. Uh, uh, treatment using chemoablation. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and and move a little inferiorly and talk about urothelial carcinoma of the bladder. So there are new chemoablative drugs for bladder cancer. This is a disease all urologists are familiar with. However, we have a very good surgery that works very well that everybody is very familiar with doing. Um, Dr. Prasad, can you talk about chemoablation for bladder cancer? Is there really a need for this modality in, in an organ that's easier to reach than the kidney in, in a, with a, a resection method that's much easier uh, than compared with the upper tract?
2: So, Brian, you know, I, I agree with you. Obviously, low-grade disease in the bladder um, is a disease that does not require uh, the big hammer like we do in the upper tract with nephroedectomy. You're not typically doing radical cystectomy on patients with low-grade disease of the bladder. So, here we're really talking about the role of chemoablation in substitution for Uh, Resection, And again, I think for some and maybe even the majority of low-grade bladder tumors, there really is no need for this. Um, They're small lesions. uh, They rarely invade. um, They don't metastasize. But the truth is there are some of these agents that um, recur, that are multifocal, that are difficult to reach. Um, And in those patients, uh, really those are the intermediate risk patients in addition to having a large tumor greater than three centimeters. I think there's a role for chemoablation in those patients. And the reason for that is that these multifocal recurrent tumors, many times they're managed with, I think again, an inadequate procedure, which would be cystoscopy with maybe some fulguration. And the reality as we all understand is those tumors often come back in the sites where they're fulgurated. To go in and have a proper tumor resection often requires general anesthesia um, or at least some sort of anesthesia. Uh, And this is a disease of older people. And so we're talking about patients who have other comorbidities who to get an adequate resection, may need to hold their anticoagulation, for example, and that carries with it uh, inherent risks of cardiovascular disease. Uh, for some patients, there's anatomical issues. You're, uh, for, for example, urethral strictures that may result because of this, catheterization. Um, and again, you're, you're really looking at, is there a non-surgical option that provides some benefit that allows you to reach these multiple recurrent tumors and really provide the same ablative response? So I think the, the principles that are there in the upper tract still hold uh, in the lower tract. Uh, and I think there certainly is, is a need for another agent that can substitute for these patients that are older on anticoagulation with anatomic uh, issues such as a, maybe an artificial sphincter um, or urethral stricture, uh, where we can use something that's maybe a bit more benign but still effective.
0: Well, Dr. Kamakleotis, what subset of patients do you really see as benefiting from chemoablation? Are urologists going to adopt this technology if the, if the data bears it out?
1: We, we currently do use chemotherapy as a treatment modality for our patients with low grade disease in the bladder who have recurrent or intermediate risk disease, multifocal low grade tumors. The only difference and the benefit with this formulation is that it's a it's a slower releasing uh, medication over six hours. So previously, currently we treat we instill the medication. And we ask patients to try to hold it for about an hour or two hours. Uh, the benefit of this is that it will work even better, I think, in patients who have low grade recurrences um, in patients that need to come to the operating room, as Dr. Prasad men- mentioned repeatedly, to have this resected. Now you can just do it in the cl- in the clinic. If you see something on your routine surveillance cystoscopy, you know the patient is a routine low grade former. Uh, of recurrent bladder disease, that would be your ideal patient. I, I think our urologists would not have a problem adapting this new technique. There are many times where we see patients with low-grade, low-volume recurrences, and sometimes patients and urologists may elect to just delay the anesthetic operation until it gets slightly bigger. Uh, so that would be a great patient for this uh, modality.
0: So Dr. Prasad, Dr. Kamakliotis was mentioning the pharmaco kinetics of, of UGN-102. So can you tell us a little bit about UGN-102? How does it work and, and what's the data behind it?
2: Yeah, so um, again, UGN-102 is, is the same principle as gel mito in the upper tract. So again, this is a reverse uh hydrogel containing mitomycin. So really what that allows is for that sustained contact for up to six to eight hours of mitomycin. That occurs whether you coat the surface of the upper tract or whether you coat the surface of the bladder. Um, and so again, what that provides is that in- inherent uh, duration of absorption into the urethelium, uh, allowing for the chemotherapy to, to provide its value. The gel itself has this mucoadhesive property, which actually causes it not to be excreted as you're passing urine. And it's sort of a very interesting pro- process that you can actually pass urine beyond and through the gel and not cause obstruction. We know that from the upper tract, right, where these gels were completely filling um, the calices in the renal pelvis and patients didn't develop flank pain. Uh, and so the gel is really, really pretty extraordinary um, and expels naturally, it's water soluble. Um, the gel has a color to it. And so patients can actually tell as it's being excreted, it's simple to do at home, they can just double flush the toilet uh, until the urine is clear. So in general, uh, because of its liquid properties, um, installation's easy, um, as it coats and becomes a gel, it allows for um, sort of optimization of the chemotherapeutic response, and then it becomes water soluble at the end and is excreted. So. It's really sort of a nice, perfect product for urologists to use, um, and really why I think the company Urogen is really a urologic cancer uh, company because of this this unique type of gel. So the clinical trial, um, I think you had mentioned, is called Optima. That was a phase two uh, clinical trial. They had a very similar model to the approach they used for the upper tract. So this, again, was a single-arm, multi-center trial using UGN-102 or mitogel, as the primary chemoablative therapy in patients with low-grade intermediate-risk non-muscle-invasive bladder cancer. And remember, those are patients with larger tumors, recurrent tumors, or multifocal tumors. There were 66 patients on the study, um, and again, the primary response was the three-month uh, cystoscopy to look for a complete response, and then they followed those patients every three months and assessed a, a durability of 12 months. Um, and as I mentioned previously, uh, as all the studies typically do, you're going to see the same sort of format of uh, a cystoscopy with a biopsy to confirm low-grade disease, six weekly installations uh, that are done in the office via the urethral catheter, uh, a little cool-down period for, you know, four to six weeks, and then a the cystoscopy to assess for the complete response for those patients that were responders that were followed every three months um, for up to three years, I believe. And the study's still uh, doing follow-up um, and, uh, and assessing for a complete response. So what the study showed um, was that the complete response rate at 3 months was 65%, which is remarkably similar to what they found in the upper tract. And so I think to some degree this really uh, demonstrates that chemoablation of low-grade urethelial cancer happens. It happens wherever you put the gel, whether you put it in the kidney uh, or in the lining of the calyces or whether you put it into the lining of the bladder. Um, and for those patients that um, had a complete response, um, the durability of response at 12 months was uh, 72.5%. So. of patients have an estimated uh, likelihood of maintaining that complete response for 12 months. I think that's actually quite reasonable. If this uh, gel did not eradicate the entirety of the papillary tumor, I think we all know that within three or six months, you'd begin to see some papillary regrowth. So those patients that um, did not maintain a complete response may very well have just had a de novo tumor, uh, which we often see in low-grade disease. But I think, again, that's a very reasonable uh, durability of response. Overall, the installation is very straightforward. It's put in through a catheter. It's a standardized dose, so you just put in a single volume at a standardized dose, so you're not really doing calculations for uh, each individual patient. Um, The dropout rate was very low in the study. Over 90% of patients were able to complete all the installations. Um, And so, again, adverse effects that were significant were were less than 10%. uh, Treatment discontinuation rates were less than 10%. So in the real world for patients on study, um, this was not a terribly complicated uh, process, as you can imagine, with basically intravescular installation uh, in the office. The adverse events are the source of things that you typically think will happen. Uh, lower urinary tract symptoms like urgency and frequency, uh, UTIs, uh, and occasional hematuria secondary to uh, probably catheterization to some degree. So overall, the data for the study showed very favorable side effect profile. Again, uh, 65% of patients having a complete response, so two-thirds of those patients were complete responders. And again remember the same way they did the study in the upper tract you have to leave tumor behind this is primary chemoablation so you went in and did a biopsy and you left other tumors or you partially biopsied a larger tumor you looked back at three months and there was nothing in the bladder. so i think it's a really you know the design of these two studies both for uh gel mito in the upper tract and optima in the, in the lower tract um i think really were were designed to show the same you know effect of really what is the same medication so if you believe in gel mito in the upper tract for low-grade disease there's no particular reason it shouldn't work in the bladder. And Ray, really that was what is what prompted sort of the next set of uh, uh, studies that really are to try to get FDA approval. Yeah, I was very surprised because I think the
0: bar for a lot of these tumors was quite high, where you're looking at intermediate risk tumors where you can have one greater than three centimeters and to have these results on these large tumors uh, really does speak to the chemo effects of, of, of UGM-102.
2: The Urogen uh, team is is now ramping up their phase three study uh, in in the lower tract. Um, I'm actually the PI for this study uh, and actually just spoke to uh, a patient today about the study. So this is called Atlas. Um, This is a much larger study. So this is a randomized controlled open label phase three study um, really with the same model. Uh, This is an international study. It's uh, over 600 patients will be uh, enrolled. This study is interesting because they're actually randomizing uh, the agent, UGN-102, actually in comparison to TURBT, So really, I think it answers the question that urologists are asking, which is, you know, how does this compare to the standard of care? I think it's interesting that it was designed this way. They really took the highest bar uh, for comparison, right? You could, you could arguably compare this to fulguration, um, as, you know, a modality that urologists often use for these kinds of, you know, recurrent or multifocal tumors. Um, but patients will be randomized one-to-one to either the agent um, or to a TURBT and again they're going to be looking at disease-free survival with the same uh, time points at a, with a complete response at three months and durability of response so i think it'll be very interesting to see the natural history of TURBT as well i mean how many patients that we do with TURBT uh, have another tumor at 12 months i think we all know that that happens and so it'll be very interesting to see how that compares and i, I don't think we can argue that there's any gold standard less than a true TURBT um, and uh, the study is just accruing now and just opening in many sites now. So um, I think it's, uh, you know, as, H- as Christos sort of mentioned, I think it's really imperative that urologists take it upon themselves to enroll patients into studies like this, right? We need to make the effort to identify patients because it's simple to say, well, I'll just full grade and come back another day, or I will, you know, I'll do the TRBT. But the reality is for us to develop agents that urologists can use going forward that are going to help our patients. Because I think an agent like this for someone on anticoagulation or who has other comorbidities that really obviate regular 2-RBT, we need products like this, right? We need non-invasive office-based products for those types of patients. So uh, taking the time to make sure you work on a for this type of study is really important for us uh, who are trying to drive these products into the market.
0: Well, I want to thank our two guests, Dr. Sandeep Prasad and Dr. Christos uh, Kamakliotis. I learned a lot today. This was a really great session. Uh, again, this was a series, a podcast series called Chemooblation in Urothelial Cancer, sponsored by Urogen Pharma on behalf of the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society. I want to, again, thank you two very much for your time and expertise and uh, uh, talking about this very exciting subject.
1: Thank you for the invitation, Dr. Hugh, and pleasure to be here with you today. Perfect to join
2: both of you today.